It is that time of year again here at the Leukemia Foundation to talk about the world's greatest shave. The world's greatest shave is one of the country's longest running and most iconic fundraising campaigns, bringing Australians together to champion a good cause for over 25 years. Every year, each March, a community of trailblazers step up to shave, cut or colour their hair, all in the name of funding game-changing blood cancer support and research. Every dollar you will raise will help keep families together when they need it the most. We'll provide practical and emotional support services to patients and their families. We'll help fund cutting-edge research and campaign for change for those affected. We'll help families meet basic costs like putting food on the table, getting to hospital or paying bills. You will join a community of trailblazers determined to shape a brighter future for blood cancer patients and their families. A community that champions change, that doesn't take no for an answer. So why don't you sign up to the Leukemia Foundation's World's Greatest Shave and shave, cut or colour your hair in support of Australians facing blood cancer. Every dollar you will raise will help provide support services to patients and families and keep them together. Hi, and welcome to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer. My name is Kate Arkadiff, and my role at the Leukemia Foundation is a blood cancer support coordinator. We provide emotional and practical support to people living with blood cancer and their loved ones. Our support is offered throughout the many different stages of a blood cancer journey. While listening to this podcast, we will share the stories of people we have connected with who have faced blood cancer so that you, our listeners, can gain insight, find purpose and take inspiration. The Leukemia Foundation acknowledges the traditional owners of the country throughout Australia and recognises their continuing connection to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This story may contain content that some listeners may find difficult and challenging. We encourage anyone listening to take care of their own mental health and well-being. The purpose of this podcast is to share the real-life stories of people living with a blood cancer, and any discussion of medical treatments is not an endorsement. We encourage you to seek the advice from your treatment team if you have any questions regarding your diagnosis, side effects, or treatment. If you would like to talk to someone, or even if you would like more information on our services or on today's episode, please feel free to contact 1-800-620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. So let's get into today's episode. Five years ago, the Hodder family were in the midst of a busy family life in Boulder Cove, which is just outside of Rockhampton in the state of Queensland. Brendan and Roxanne were both juggling full-time work and their two children, Darcy, who was in daycare, and Matilda, who was in year one. Brendan, he had just set off on a trip of a lifetime to celebrate his 40th birthday. And little did he know that shortly after, he would be diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. 
Life changed instantly. Roxanne had to drop everything, pack a bag of clothes for Brendan and herself and head to Brisbane, all while leaving Matilda and Darcy in the care of family back in Bouldercombe. Today we are joined by Roxanne, who is Brendan's wife and also became his carer. Thank you so much for joining us today, Roxanne. So can you paint me a picture of what was what was going on the day Brendan was diagnosed? So just prior to Brendan's diagnosis a fortnight earlier, I had sent him on the birthday trip of a lifetime where he was going to ride a motorbike from Cairns to Cape York. He was really sick. As I said, we'd had winter colds, but you know, it was an expensive holiday and he was determined to do it. He yeah passed out on the motorbike and fell off on the first day and broke his arm, hit his head, and I had to fly urgently to Cairns to rescue him and bring him home um, and help him with travel. Once we got home, he had lots of surgery, three sets of surgery in three days, but he just got sicker and sicker and sicker, and it got to the point where he couldn't even walk to the bathroom. And that was the day that we went to the doctor and we were lucky. Our family doctor saw us. A friend of ours was sitting in the waiting room and let Brendan go first. She could see that he was really unwell. And we went in and the doctor said, oh, I probably, you know, had lots of surgery, probably just needs a blood transfusion. Um, yeah. We hadn't even really considered that there was something seriously wrong. Like we knew he was really sick, but we thought it would probably be easily solved. So two hours later, I've got a toddler running around. I've got Brennan in bed at his mum's house because we live out of town. I'm getting work phone calls. I'd had him at the dentist because his mouth was full of ulcers and the doctor rings and he says, Brennan's got leukaemia, he's really sick. And as he said that to me, I had walked up the hallway and was standing at the bedroom door where Brendan was lying down and he could tell immediately that I'd just been told something really bad. And I couldn't, I actually couldn't tell Brendan. I said to Brad, our doctor, no, no, you have to say that again because I can't, I can't tell Brendan that. And so he's, I put him on speakerphone and he told Brendan and he just asked some questions like, do you think you're well enough to get on a plane? No. Okay, I'll organise the flying doctors. You'll be going to the Wesley. I've organised your doctor. You need to go to the Hillcrest Hospital in Rocky. You need to get there as soon as possible. So we got off the phone. Um, my mum walked in um, because she knew that we were there and that Brennan was sick. We rang Brennan's sister and his mum and told them and they came home. And it was decided that um, his sister, who's a nurse, would take him to the hospital and that mum and I would go home and get some stuff for Brendan. So I wasn't really responsible for telling any of our family. Our mums and sisters did that. But I was driving down the highway by myself on the, on the way home and I rang one of my best friends and her husband had had lymphoma a number of years earlier and she just screamed down the phone at me, do not Google, do not Google. And I was just so grateful that I got that message straight away because, of course, in this day and age, that's our first inclination uh, and it's a very dangerous one when you don't know what you're looking at and you don't understand yep. how to read that information. So by the time I got home, 
my auntie was here cleaning out the fridge and I packed a kindy bag for Darcy, for Brendan, Darcy's kindy bag, and I put in a pair of board shorts and a shirt and a pair of thongs and a pair of jocks and sent him to the hospital. We had no idea, no idea that we would be gone for, you know, more than half a year. We had no idea what ride we were in for. And we got You back. didn't know a diagnosis of a leukemia meant no. a good solid couple of months away from in your home and in the big smoke. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, I've I'm highly educated. I've worked in the health industry for twenty years. I've worked in the cancer industry for twenty years and I didn't know what leukemia was. I didn't know what platelets were. I didn't know how they treated it and I didn't know how how seriously ill people with blood cancer get and how they suffer but also how they thrive yeah yeah definitely yeah it's um it's all of that in in the one journey isn't it it's um it's a bumpy one but yeah it was a baptism by fire you know thinking back we're so embarrassed because we were both like what are these and they're platelets oh are they oh okay Water platelets, you know, and we were just, how can you not know that? But so many people don't, and we lived in blissful ignorance, but we don't anymore. And do you think that through not having prior knowledge also helped protect you in some ways? Like not having many preconceived notions about what to expect? It definitely protected us. We didn't know many people who'd had yeah. blood cancer, and certainly. I couldn't have thought of anybody at that time who had who I knew who had died from a blood cancer. Yep. And you know how when you get pregnant, everyone tells you all the horror stories about the miscarriage or the stillbirth or the terrible labour. Well, once you've had a blood cancer, people want to tell you those stories. What we need to hear from is people like Brendan. I had blood cancer. It was really bad. But there's things you can do. There's ways that you can approach this and hopefully you can be one of the lucky ones like I was, like he was, and you can survive. Yeah, yeah. And I think that also, um, as you've said, you know, you do hear those those negative stories but also they're not your story. It's not everybody is so individual and you cannot, you can't compare because everyone's apples and oranges and, and pineapples and, and whatnot. Everybody is so different. So we can have similar stories, but it, it's, it's, not, um, it's not, not identical. Absolutely. And that was um, a lesson that we learned early on because there was a lady who um, was diagnosed with leukaemia the same day as Brendan, um, five or six years younger than Bren, um, who was in the bed next to him. And they were both told they had AML. But the journey, you know, so at the start they were on the same treatment because once you arrive, you know, there's there's some standard stuff that they throw at you. But those journeys yeah. were so different and it was hard for, for Tracy watching Brendan's story because it, it, you know, it turned bad pretty quick for Brendan. Uh, and then it was yeah. hard for us when, when Tracy got sick during one of her rounds of chemo. So... At the start, we thought we were the same and we learnt very much that the only thing we had that was the same was that there was an overall diagnosis of AML, not the type. Yeah. So you landed in Brisbane. 
I imagine, after Brendan, he would have been on autopilot, having rounded up the kids, organised that, organised home, jumped, being told your husband has um, leukaemia. And I remember only days after Brendan had landed in Brisbane, you had emailed me with a with number of questions, wanting as much information and as much trusted information as you could possibly get your hands on. And you, so um, you trusted us and our resources. And I, I feel like you were arming yourself. You were arming yourself for the journey ahead of you. Were your children with you when you first came to Brisbane, or were they? Well, when we first left, we we really didn't think we'd be gone for long. We left the children in Rocky and I had to make some decisions about what was happening with the children and I actually depended on my sister to implement those decisions for me because I wasn't capable of having all those discussions and the planning that went into having two little children for a a long time. Um, So I was so lucky Take any help you're offered is my one of my strong messages. And we were reinforced yeah. that on the first day by a nurse at the Wesley. She said, take the help. Don't judge whether or not the people want to give you that help. If it's going to help your family, you have to take it. And yeah. so that was a really important message. And that's a message that I share with anyone who's going through a serious illness, injury yeah. or life-changing event is take the help. It was really funny because people would say to me, oh, you must be missing the children. And I'm sure that I was, but I actually didn't have the emotional or the physical or the mental space to care for those children as they deserved and as they needed. I was at the hospital for 14, 15 hours a day and the rest of the time I was trying to organise stuff. Yeah, because life doesn't stop, does it? No, There's like, stuff in the background that keeps going. Yeah, and it's just, it's such a big job. I had to outsource so many jobs and I still, it just took such a huge amount of effort. But I depended on my sister a lot. I was, I'm so lucky. I've got a wonderful sister like her. And I felt that for many months, I depended on her to help me make decisions. I wasn't capable of making them. I couldn't. I was getting frozen in minor, minor decisions and then I wouldn't remember what decision I made anyway. Yeah, and your brain I think would have just been in that survival and autopilot and in protection to, you know, harness the energy where it really needed to be and that focus was on Brendan. It had to be. had to be on Brendan because every person needs an advocate and every person needs someone they can depend on and there's things that I would notice that I would ask questions about that he wouldn't notice, you know. There were things that he wasn't willing to ask questions about that I had questions about. There were things that he'd noticed that I didn't notice. It took two of us to manage his health. Yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, you said before that um, the acceptance of help and without taking, without judgment, was that? hard was that a hard thing to go okay I need to accept some help here it actually was it was actually hard accepting some of the amazing help that the leukemia foundation offered so accommodation you know some of the financial support that you are able to provide on some occasions um the 
the Christmas hampers and gifts for the children, like the Leukemia Foundation are very generous and they know and they reminded me over and over again that people give to them because they want to help people like us. And once you accepted it, what did it do? Well, it takes that weight off your shoulders, which allows for you to cope with the other weights that you have on your shoulders. So it doesn't take the worry away, but it takes one worry away. So, you know, I'd be worried about fixing the car. That worry would go away. Oh, good. Okay. Now I've got more time to worry about Brendan or now I've got more time to worry about the children or now I've got more time to worry about if he's had his medicine. Yeah. Because you know one thing's, you know, one one thing's been taken care of and I guess that that's what you said in the beginning is to accept the help and it sounds like that's what it does. By accepting the help, it it, it hands that, that worry you may have over to somebody else to help you deal with it and manage it. Absolutely. And I really wish that um, the website Gather My Crew had been around when we um, when Brenda was sick. Uh-huh. So Gather My Crew is a website where you can put in all the things you need help with and send a link to your family and friends and they can go, okay, I can walk the dog on Tuesdays or I can go mow the lawn this weekend. And wow. I would have used, used that app and there would have been even more jobs on it than I handed out. <laughs> well, we will definitely put that in the show notes because I have no doubt lots of people are going to be like, what was that website? So we will put that that website in the show notes for everyone so they can um, link themselves into that. That sounds like a fantastic resource and one that I think that would just streamline everything and not have the 50,000 emails that are coming in and asking where can I help. It's beautifully put there to say, here, this is how you can help. Yes, it's amazing. Yeah. So you so you st- you came to Brisbane. You, you stayed very close to the hospital, right across the road. You could look at look at the the hospital from your hotel room. Was there a point when you went, okay, we've got to change this up, or where the financial the financial outlay, and knowing that it's going to be a big, you know, a long a long road? Did that? Um, was there a point where you went, okay? I may need to call on the Leukemia Foundation's resources. It's such a funny story because I was very happy across the road in my um, 10th floor apartment and I've actually got nice memories of that apartment. Brennan never set foot in it ever. He he doesn't know, you know, the people that came to see me there and, and the love that I received in that building and the reassurance I had from being so close to him. But... You know, after two weeks in the hospital or 17 days, Brendan relapsed. Um, Our doctor said, this is even more serious now. You're going to need a bone marrow transplant to survive. You're going to be in Brisbane a long time. So that reality had to set in for me and what that next round of my future looked like and our future looked like. But he was also getting well, um, you know, and we were looking towards the discharge of him from the Wesley Hospital, which was 56 days he spent um, in that high dependency unit in the Wesley. Um, So I was across the road for about 50 of those days, I think, and I didn't want to leave. It was awful. And I didn't want to come and be a person who lived in a village. And I didn't want to be that far from the hospital. And I didn't want to have to drive in the city. And They were all the things that I, you know, was were thinking of. And yeah. thankfully 
my family and friends and Marianne from the Leukemia Foundation made me see the sense that it wasn't a long-term viable option. You know, mm. we really did need to accept the help of the Leukemia Foundation. And so Marianne offered to take Brendan's mum, who I call Nana, Nana and I over to the village to have a look. And she promised me that it would only take 11 minutes in the car. And I timed her and I was very happy because it was a full 11 minutes. And <laughs> he was just laughing at me going, you are an idiot. But, you know, it meant I really needed to be close to him. But he was only in there about a week, I think, and then he was home with me. And yeah. by home, I mean the village. The village became our home. The people in that village became our family. Yeah, yeah. So you found that having support really helped buffer whatever, whatever what was going on for Brendan and yourself. I mean, if you have a guest by now, I love talking and I love people. And I am someone who talks about my emotions and has to share how I'm feeling. And yep. early in um, early in the days at the Wesley, I'd um, well on the very first day they sent us a chaplain, um, and it was a man named David Nix, and he's really special to us. David Nix, we stay in contact, um, and it gave Brendan a man to talk to. But yep. because of David's beautiful wisdom and companionship in that time he taught Brendan that you know a problem shared is a problem halved and Brendan always used to say you know I'm not someone who talks about these things but I've realized that it helps and it can help you know and um I I constantly seek out connections with people and and talk to people and you know I developed deeper relationships with our friends that live close by and I developed very deep and loving and long-term friendships and relationships with people who were our family in the village. Yeah, well, and that's, I think that is such an important message, you know, that a burden shared is a burden halved, but by calling in people and calling in new people that you, you sometimes might not want to call in, um, you know, say accepting of that help helps you through such a really hard time, you know, and one that you never chose. Absolutely. And yeah. the thing about the people in the village is everyone's got their own awful story. Everyone's dealing with something really terrible that's happened in their lives. Um, but through that, they've all got shared learnings. And, you know, we talked at the start of this about every journey is different. Um, mm. But what you could do is you could ask questions and you, they would say, well, this is what happened to my person when they took that medicine or this is how they felt three days after or this is how long they were in hospital. And even though you can't compare, it kind of gave you a benchmark and it gave you some reassurance that everything was okay or yep. that you needed to get some more help or yeah, we took a lot of support from each other in terms of, do you think he's okay? Like, you know, he's doing this. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, so-and-so did that, before, you know, after they came out yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. It's like, as you said, it's um the stories of when you're pregnant of what you hear, but then it's the stories of, like when you go to play group or something and everyone's comparing developmental milestones of their child to another person's child and it's that, yeah, it's that connection, isn't it? It is the connection and it's the you can't compare those milestones, 
like you can compare the strategies or the actions. Yeah. Like, you know, yep. what worked for your baby for sleep might not work for mine, but I can give it a whirl. Yeah. Because yep. I haven't thought yep. of that or I didn't know yeah. that that was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So because, uh, you know, I think you overnight you went from being a wife to Brendan to then being a carer. So how did you find that change of role? Did it, did it, was it isolating? How, 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 how was that for you? It was very isolating because I, I was so scared, obviously, of losing him. And I had to make a lot of decisions for us and our family. Um, and I generally discussed them with him, but ultimately I made the decisions because I needed to do what was right for me as the person who was mm-hmm. trying to implement and manage those decisions or yep. or ask other people to help me implement those yeah. decisions. And that was just, um, it was just so awful that time. And, and he didn't even feel like him. You know, he started to look like a stranger because he lost so much weight and was so thin and, you know, his personality changed during the tr- – that time just in terms of his anxiety or um how he was feeling and I know that he's already said to you that the only people he was rude to were me and his mother um yeah but it was so hard it was so so hard to try to let him be grumpy at us but not get grumpy back at him but yeah still just trying to do the right thing by everybody and I mean by everybody, our family, the four of us. That's yeah. who I had to do the right thing by. And, in fact, I'd include his mum in that. She's elderly yeah. and she was one of my biggest supports and I needed to make sure that what we were doing was right for Nana as well. She didn't need to lose her little boy, her only son, yeah. to this. Yeah. And, and you know, you said that there were some really tough times and you do – cop the brunt of a lot of the frustration of what is going on for the patient and sometimes it's intentional other times it isn't but it's how did you how did you get through those times of consistently putting your um your desires or what you need on the back end and and looking after and looking after someone else um I think I had my sister looking and and those girlfriends who were living close by looking out for me. Marianne was making me have massages by the amazing Leukemia Foundation massage guy, Craig. He's amazing. And talking to people helped. But I am not afraid of giving my opinion. And a funny story happened post-transplant. Brennan had... Um, some terrible vertigo and he ended up back in the emergency department um, at the hospital with vertigo and Mm. he had this young doctor come in and she didn't wash her hands in front of us and she started touching the entry point to his Hickman line his central line with her bare hands and I was like I'm sorry but please don't touch my husband without washing your hands and she kind of looked at me and walked out because that's what they do when you reprimand them on hand hygiene and he looked at me and he was so mad and he was like you just need to you know pull your head in you're being ridiculous and you know I'm gonna just come without you next time and I was like laughing my head off because 
he couldn't even barely walk because the vertigo was so bad. So I would have really liked to see him get there by himself. <laughs> and I just yeah. turned to him and I said, and it's not strictly true, but I turned to him and I said, there's only one person in this hospital who cares if you live or die and that is me. And if I feel yeah. the need to say something like that, I will. So I don't really care what you think. I'm still going to say it. And yeah. he backed off and he realised that I'd done the right thing and that he was just being a bit grumpy at me when he shouldn't have. Yeah. It's hard for patients because they're so vulnerable and they're, despite it being 2020, they're still scared that if you if you speak to a doctor or a nurse and and ask them something or, or do what I did that day, that you're going to get bad care. So he didn't want me saying that to the doctor because he was too scared. They wouldn't be nice to him or yeah. treat him properly, even yeah. though that's not what happens. Yeah, and you were putting his protection actually in front of um, that fear of yeah. reprimanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how did you feel? Was there a point where you were you felt like you couldn't take any take any more on, or that you needed? to add in I guess you said we offered you the massages and things like that but was there a point where you went okay I need to add in some self-care for myself I think that um for people self-care is different things so if we had someone else another family member with us that often send me off shopping you know to get a couple of hours that kind of thing but I actually made beautiful, beautiful friends at the village and we would go downstairs and have happy hour together and that was my self-care, just being down there, watching the children play, having a wine, talking to people who know the trauma, um, but just about life and about love and about living and um, that to me was the best thing that I did for my self-care was make those friends in the village and learn from them, share with them, um, support them so you would, as they supported me. Yeah, so you would say that it's really important to kind of look at what is your your own self-care and being able to tap into that and do you think that that plays an important part of you being able to continue to be that strong support for Brendan? Absolutely. I, I did have some guilt about leaving him upstairs lying down or going shopping yeah. and being away from him. Um, but I knew that I needed to do it for me and I enjoyed it and it made me feel less worried and less stressed. So it was important for all of us. Yeah. And as hard as it is, I think, you know, it, it taking some time away for yourself really help re-energises you, you know, and helps you come back that bit stronger, you know, as well. Because they do say, you know, when you're on the aeroplane, fit your mask first before anybody else's. So you need to give yourself some love and some um, yeah. downtime as well. Yeah, and I do that by connecting with people. That's I, yeah. Some people don't get energy from people, but I do. Yeah, yeah. Whatever works, whatever yeah. works. So lots went on for you and Brendan whilst you stayed at the village. You had um, Brendan relapsed, unfortunately, during the time you guys were in Brisbane. He had an unrelated transplant, which he was able to get out at, what was that, day 16 he mentioned? 
Yeah, I think it was day 16 or 17. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then we were so- really lucky. We had a very smooth run um, through transplant. Um, yeah. We didn't have a smooth run in that first 56 days. That's where the real horror and the trauma was for us when he was so sick and he had terrible reactions to the chemo and he relapsed and it was awful. So we were expecting to be on that terrible roller coaster again for transplant, but um, for whatever God-given reason, he he actually coped with it physically not too badly. Um, he was very much at the mild end of of the um, symptoms that you can get, the mucositis, the pain, that kind of thing. And so that actually made it quite a calm time. I had my new friends at the village, you know, I was happy there. I had my babies back with me um, and family to support me. So transplant doesn't have to be a horror story. Sometimes it, sometimes it is, but don't be too scared about going into transplant. Some people, like my husband, are very lucky and they might have a good, good trip through it. Some don't. you just got to take each day. But I think I was relieved during transplant because it wasn't as bad as what we'd already been through. Yeah, yeah. And he also mentioned that um, you wonderfully and beautifully um, encouraged him to uh, walk around the ward and keep moving and keep active and throughout his inpatient stay from the very beginning all the way to being able to go home. So... What I can say about physical activity um, is that in the early days before Brennan got really sick from the chemo, he tried very hard to keep walking around that ward to get out of his room to use the little exercise, sitting exercise bike thing. And the nurses told us that it's one of the wonderful things you can do to get your blood flowing, to get it moving through your body, get that chemo going through to make sure it gets all the naughty leukemia cells everywhere. Um, So he was very motivated to keep moving, um, to keep that blood flowing because it was, it was just sort of an offhand comment that a nurse had made. Um, Once we got home. That's something he grabbed onto. Yeah. Yeah. And important, very important. Um, But he also stayed in bed when he needed to stay in bed, you know, so um, finding that balance is very difficult for patients, I think. Um, maybe it isn't difficult. Maybe they're so sick that they can't get out of bed some days. But yeah. I know that he did He did want to try to keep moving as much as he could. And one of the, the biggest acts that um, will stay with me forever is that he actually had to on day plus one, the day after his transplant, he had to get himself up out of that bed and he had to walk himself out of that ward to see the children on Christmas Day. So he was very motivated. He had big motivation that day to get moving. And then, um, you know, once we um, got back to the village, we'd walk around the block or just around the village itself and try and get some fresh air and you know have a sit and just be outside and look at the sky and that kind of thing one message that we definitely have for anyone going through a blood cancer is that physical activity is a key key critical part of recovery 
So Marianne had told us that over and over again. Um, and Brendan had started going to the exercise um, program that the Leukemia Foundation runs in Brisbane, but he wasn't actually sort of physically strong or well enough to during the time that we were there or confident enough to go out. He didn't want to be involved in anything till that 100 days was up post-transplant. Mm -hmm. But once we got home, Brennan got, um, I enrolled him in a, um, with an exercise physiologist and he went two or three times a week and he probably went for eight months and his, his stamina, his endurance, his sleep, his mental health, his lung capacity, you name it, physically it just changed him. He went from a 40-year-old man who was a high falls risk because he had been so sick to undertaking exercises that the elite athletes at that clinic couldn't do. Yeah. And he's when, not into exercise, people. So, yeah. you know, for him That's to be able to company. achieve that really means that any of you can achieve that and that you need to try your best to get some physical activity because it will change your life. And from a carer's perspective, I think that, you know, that's the message that so many carers do, well, you know, hammer home to their um, their loved one who is sick. How, what um, do you have any words for the carer? Because it can be can fall on deaf ears for the patient and that can become quite irritating for the carer. Do you have any words of wisdom, I guess? I um, do have a little word, some words of wisdom about that, Kate, and I'm sure you're yeah. going to love it. And Brenda yeah. will roll his eyes and every other blood cancer patient will roll their eyes. But what I say to all my friends is don't be the messenger. If you need a message to your loved one who is the person with blood cancer, find someone else to give that message. So if I had something I needed him to do around his treatment, his care, um, what he was doing, I would, you know, I tried at the start to get him to do the things I thought that he should do, but he would tell me to go jump. So after that, I would start asking those questions of the people he trusted, the medical people he trusted. So, you know, the nurses or the doctor or um, or Marianne. And I would say, you know, I'd say, oh, what do you think about this, Marianne? And she'd go, oh, Brendan, this is what you have to do. Yeah. And he'd go, yeah. oh, okay, Marianne, I'll do that. Yeah. You know, whereas if I had told him, he would have said, shut your trap, you don't know what you're on about, you're not me, yeah. you're not sick. Yeah, you know. Yeah, um, and it's not that he didn't trust you, but it's that y you can easily dismiss a loved one, and with uh, and and with a medical professional, you um, they tend to look at them, don't they? Because they're willing to do anything that they say to help them survive. That's right. So find the nurse that your loved one admires and trusts, and ask them to mention that thing like drink more water or try and walk around the ward more or, yep. you know. Um, Engage in a mental health program or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so lots of times, Mary, I'd go down and cry to Marianne about an issue and then I'd go off to get groceries or whatever and she'd just suddenly visit Brendan, feel the need to visit Brendan and share that little message with him from her opinion and suddenly, magically, it would happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. So, you know, with with having spent, you know, how many days were you in um, Brisbane for over 
Uh, we were in prison you know? for about 220 days, about seven months. Not as long as some of our friends, but who were down there for blood cancer, you know, who we met through blood cancer, but still a long time. So seven months of um, being in Brisbane and then the doctor says, all right, Hodders, you can go home. How was how was that transition to go home? So it it was um it was a really interesting time. I had to pack up seven months of belongings at the village. That was a really big job because we'd been there over Christmas, over Darcy's birthday, and everybody felt so sorry for the children that they just kept sending presents every single day, every single day. And then we went to the Leukemia Foundation Christmas party and got lots of presents. And so packing up was the first challenge. Um, Leaving behind the people who were still at the village is a challenge. Um, I had to drive home. I'd never driven all that distance before. He'd always done the driving. You know, those roles were reversed. And he's not... I love him so much more than anything in the universe, um, but he's not that good at empathy. And I cried the whole way, 700 kilometres. I cried the whole way home while I was driving and he just kept getting up me and asking why I was crying and, and commenting on my driving. It was a nightmare. <laughs> and do you know why you were crying? Do you know what it was that was making you I I was cry? crying for the last seven months for leaving our friends leaving our safe place I was crying in fear of what we were coming home to of what our new life looked like I was crying in grief for our old life that was gone forever never to return I was crying for me because I had this awful man next to me who was getting up my driving <laughs> you know there was a lot yeah. to cry about on that 700 kilometer yeah. time yeah then we got home and I had some people say to me, well, when are you going back to work? And I kind of looked at them like they were aliens. And I was like, I'm not going back to work at the moment, you know, and I was very steadfast in that. I was very lucky I had a supportive workplace and that we, um, you know, that I had some income protection because I was in no condition to go back to work. I couldn't barely leave him in the next room without worrying about what was happening to him and wanting to come out and check his temperature. Yeah. You had literally, you guys had just returned from battle. And I think that some people, you know, many people I've sat in front of, they, they say, oh, people think that because I've returned home, it means that it's over. Mm. And sometimes I've heard from people, they say, actually, doing the chemotherapy and the treatment, that was easy because it was directed by professionals. The next half is directed by me and that can be quite challenging. It was really challenging because we live out of town so the roles were still reversed. You know, I'd, I'd always helped with the mowing but I don't whip a snip and, you know, I don't stick my hand down the septic tank and there were all these kinds of jobs that I sort of had to take on or delegate um, and people did. People were like, oh, are you home now? It's all over. It's not over. It's not over. You know, I spent the first 12 months getting him physically recovered by all the exercise that I sent him to and trying to fatten him up, which also a little warning for carers, if you're trying to fatten them up, don't fatten yourself up. 
<laughs> might have fallen for that, um, you know, and trying to readjust the kids to school but so, so scared of what germs they were going to get at school and at kindy and, you know, ongoing discussions with with schools and kindies about if someone's sick, you have to call me, I have to come and get him. You know, ongoing discussions with people who wanted to see Brendan who thought that he was all better and could come near him when they were sick. You know, yeah. that that battlefront of keeping sick people away from him yeah. um, still goes on, still goes yeah. on, you know. Yeah. Oh, it's just a cold. It's probably yeah. the coronavirus is, you know, is dealing with the conditions to protect yourself from coronavirus, we're all experts at. Yes. But I think it's made it perhaps somewhat easier for other people to understand what we have to do and why. Yeah, yeah. Up until this year, up until this year, you know, people didn't understand that he's still not vaccinated, that he could still get, you know, a childhood um, communicable disease. I had influenza last year and I was so terrified of giving it to him um, because he can't have the flu needle but thankfully the Leukemia Foundation the doctors and nurses they trained us well we isolated me he he was would literally walk past the bedroom door and spray Glen 20 at me (laughs) but he didn't get it you know and I thought that was I was really proud of the children of him and I of being able to contain that virus in our household. I'm not confident that we could do it with coronavirus. You know, yeah. carers will spend a lot of time lying awake at night, terrified that they will get that virus and they will kill their person. Yeah. But that's what I spend my nights worrying about now. Yeah. Yeah. The, the fears, um, same, to- same fear, different topic, you know, it's the, Ooh. Yeah, it's not just a general flu now. There's something else bigger out there that we're quite afraid yeah. of. And yeah. I guess, you know, people will often say, people who haven't got the blood cancer and it's not their person, oh, you know, there's always a reason. Well, we know that there's no reason. Um, we can't ask why because we know there's not an answer. But how do you turn something bad into something good? And I think that has been a really motivating factor for me coming out of this is I don't want people to feel like I did. I want them to know that they need to ask for help. I want them to know that carers have needs too. I want the world to know that it is desperately important that you donate blood if you can and that if you are under the age of 35, that you joined the bone marrow register. It only changed in the last couple of weeks to be 35. These are the things that saved my husband's life, saved my family, let my son have his dad there on the first day of school, blood donors, bone marrow donor, the Leukemia Foundation have given our family back our future. And so I try to stay as involved as I can, um, I've been involved in reviewing the National Blood Action Plan, the Leukemia Foundation website, and now I'm doing this, which is really fun. Um, I do a lot of um, speaking publicly in pre-COVID times for Lifeblood, and I spend a lot of time in the chair at Lifeblood donating. 
And every time I sit in that chair, I think of the bags and bags, nearly 80 bags of blood and platelets that wow. had received. And I think about yep. those 80 people who saved his life. And I think about the young man who donated his blood, his bone marrow, yeah. and gave me my husband back. Yeah. What a gift. Such a gift. Such a such a gift. And and not something that we knew about. Yeah. You know? Yeah. People need to know how easy it is to to help save lives. Exactly. And that's it. I think it's key, the key thing is is that it is easy to roll up your sleeve if you can. It's easy to put a couple of dollars into a tin to help better the lives of you know the people going through this journey. So can we talk um we'll just take you back to the point where we we were talking about um the returning of home and how you found that transition and what that that looked like and we think you, we were mentioning you mentioned about the roles having changed since you returned home. Yeah, so the the roles in those early um in that early year or two, you know, we're nearly 5 years post transplant now. So Things have changed again for us, but in those first two years, I think when we came home, I still had to lead this family. I sometimes felt like I was doing that alone because there were still decisions that needed to be made um, and Brennan was still in that recovery phase. But as we, we, we've really tried to recover from the trauma that we went through, we both saw counsellors, we both, you know, talk to our friends and our family and we um, accessed help. Um, we've stayed in touch with the Leukemia Foundation and we've turned it into a little bit of a purpose. Um, but it was interesting. If something about the roles that I was going to say is I found it really hard to let go of those roles then. I wanted to keep them. I wanted to keep making sure that he was drinking enough water, that he was taking his tablets at the right time. And it was very difficult for me to let go. And it took a lot of work from Marianne at the Leukemia Foundation as well as our counsellor that we went to to say, you need to back off. You need to let go of this. He is in charge of his health and you don't need to have this extra stress now. These are jobs that you don't need to do anymore. We know you love him. We know that you want to help him as much as possible, but he can fill his own water bottle now. Yeah. You know, so, and it's about, yeah, transitioning from that role of a carer back to being a role of a wife, you know, being a wife and being being on the same team and sharing the load. Yeah. And um, it's hard for the patient to transition out of being the patient as well. He's used to be filling his water bottles, you know. Yeah. That's how it was. So, um, and sometimes even to this day, I still have to remind myself that, um, we've always had a very equal relationship, you know, but sometimes I still have to remind myself, no, he can do that actually. You know, I don't, I don't have to be the nurse in these situations. And yep. even, even to things like oh, I was always saying, have you got enough medicine? Do I need to go to the chemist? I don't ask that question anymore. If he wants me to go to the chemist, he will have to ask me and he'll have yep. to tell me what he needs because I yep. have to let go of those things. Yeah, he has to take that responsibility as well. Yeah. The shared balance. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's an ongoing journey to recover from that. But I think that that 
um, letting go has made my life easier. It's been those worries off the shoulders. Okay, one less thing I have to do today is, you know, do the water bottles or ask him 10 times, you know, if he needs me to get him medicine or that kind of thing. What's your temperature? Yeah, what's your temperature? Um, And, you know, we've, We've tra- we've tried to travel. We've taken our kids. We've taken our old caravan, and we've gone to the beach. And we just live by the beach. We live a simple life. But we're not really people who have a bucket list. We just try to live our best life every single day, and that means doing some of the things that we've always wanted to do. So people might call that yeah. a bucket list. We don't. But we're like, yeah. you know what? It's time to see the snow. You know what? It's time to go out and see Uluru, and. Yeah. To, to last year to watching him ride around Uluru, climbing Kings Canyon, walking through the Valley of the Winds, walking around Wilpina Pound, you know, that was a really special moment for me because they're the moments that I thought had been taken away forever yeah. and they haven't been and I know how lucky I am and he is and we all are that they weren't taken away forever but it's just important that you make every day your best day yeah and to know that when you I guess thinking back you're thinking for a person that's in this moment with a newly diagnosed um, loved one that those moments may be paused but to know that as where you sit Roxanne today that they've been press play and you're able to experience all those wonderful things that you guys had made, you know, um, a wishful to be able to do and see. Absolutely. But our moments, our love story, our um, enjoyment of each other's company continued, you know. We laughed and made fun of each other through Mm. some of his better days in hospital. The bad ones, he was under the cover, you know. Yeah, under the covers hiding but we did lots of funny things and enjoyed each other's company and laughed yeah yeah so we tried to and make s- the best of those days too yeah and for some people before you know you hear I couldn't survive if I got diagnosed with a, a cancer or if my loved one got diagnosed with a cancer you can't imagine how there can be happy moments in it but as you've just beautifully said you still had those happy moments and even some of those really horrid periods we absolutely did and you know one story um Brenda was in hospital during transplant but it was New Year's Eve and so all our new friends at the village, we decided to have a New Year's Eve party and we had one of those little light boxes and we put swear words about 2015 being a bad year on it and we drank too much champagne. And it was so surreal to all of us that we were in this village with, you know, because of this terrible thing that had happened that we were having so much fun. It was nearly yeah. illegal how much fun we had that <laughs> night, you know. It was so fun. Yeah. But it was still had in a in a time that um, people were experience, experiencing some real, real tough um, cards that had been dealt. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we wrap up each episode, Roxanne, with asking um, everybody uh, if there is some golden nuggets that you could give today's listeners, um, what would they be? What would you like to impart some on to some wisdom. I have three things that I thought that I would share with listeners. The first, of course, is don't try to do this alone. Accept the help. You need the help. 
accept the help. Um, the second is finding the joy in the little things each day, trying to find something to be happy about at some point. But just prior to Brendan being sick, I'd met a lady who had had a lot of cancer in her family and she said that when she went to the counsellor, the counsellor said to her, don't say everything's going to be okay because everything might not be okay. And you know that it's a lie, that saying everything's okay is potentially a lie. What you need to say is you can handle anything that comes your way. And I was meant to meet that lady. I was meant to hear that story because all the way through I would say to myself and to Brendan as well, we can handle anything didn't want to talk about what anything could and very well nearly was, but we can handle anything that comes our way. So true, isn't it? You know, and I think it's that mantra and that's that positive mantra to yourself that you are strong enough to handle this and you can do hard things even though you feel like sometimes you can't do it, but sometimes you've done it and you think you can't do it, but you've done, you know, you've already done it. I say it to my yeah. kids all the time, but I've actually never thought about the fact that I can do hard things too. So can yeah. it. We have. Yeah. You have. You really have. Yeah. We did some really hard things. You did. And and things that you don't expect that you're ever going to have to face and nobody ever sees a blood cancer about to walk into their lives. It's unfortunately always such a shock. And um, it's one thing that really, it's almost like a snow globe. It just turns your life upside down and then everything's swirling around it. But I think at some point everything settles, you know. It all settles at the bottom. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Mm. It's really tough. It looks different. And it looks different. But to have your support... Try to find some joy and remember you can handle anything that comes your way. Oh. Well, thank you, Roxanne. That is some beautiful messaging there. And I, um, we can't thank you enough for always just being such a beautiful and strong advocate and loud advocate for the Leukemia Foundation. And we are so lucky to have had you on here today and to share your message and to um, your story as well. So thank you. Well, thank you. And we can't thank the Leukemia Foundation enough for everything that they've done for us. So the feeling is very mutual. And that brings us to the end of this episode today with Roxanne Hodder. Firstly, I would like to thank Roxanne for her time and for her being so open and honest and raw when sharing her story. I feel that Roxanne gave a voice to carers and shone the light on what it is like to watch a loved one go through a blood cancer. It's not every day that you see this. The days are tough and the days are long and the fight is always worth it. We do hope that you found this helpful in some way. And if you would like any more information on our services or today's episode, please feel free to call one 800 620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Kate Arkadiff and you've been listening to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer.